Hello and welcome to the Squeaky Bum Time podcast presented exclusively on the Chop Sports Channel of the Premier Streaming Network. We are recording this on Monday, April 24th. I am your host, Laurent Cortines. In this episode, Arsenal wilt under the Friday Night Lights. The FA Cup Final is going to be a derby. <laughs> and Spurs completely implode up in St. James's Park. But first, Joy, Wrexham FC are going up to the Football League. Wowie wow. As you know, we've got to do our homework first. Please like, share, and subscribe to the show. It means everything. So like on YouTube, share. However you find the show, however you come to it, please become a subscriber, become a follower. Follow me on Twitter any way you want to. All the information is in the descriptions, wherever you find the show. We need you. We love you. Now let's get to it. Wrexham FC. So we've talked about Wrexham a couple times throughout the show. They are the owned by Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney of uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia fame. They have a Welcome to Wrexham on Hulu, which has become a big show. And they've done a great job of creating the narrative around the show. Season one, they lost in the playoffs. Uh, and in season two, they're going to go up with no playoffs. So this Wrexham team... They beat Boreham Wood at home to win. They go down a goal. Then Super Paul Mullen scores two, I believe, uh, late in the first, in the second half, and they win 3-1 to secure their promotion to the Football League. Um, I felt all the feels. I think about American sport all the time. So let's sort of set the stage. Let me. I, I wonder if I can clear some things up about how British fo English football works. At the top of the pyramid, the top 20 teams in England are in the Premier League. It's called the Premier League and separate from the Football League because in 1992, they broke away from the Football League to form their own league that they could negotiate TV rights with. And that is the start of the money that we see in the Premier League. They did agree to be part of the FA and part of the pyramid. That was part of the negotiation process. So you have the Premier League, then you have the Football League. The Football League represents the next four divisions in England. 24 teams in each league, all professional, all professional. And that is the traditional league that the Premier League was a part of and left. Okay. The next level down is the National League. That is where that has traditionally been a semi-professional league. That is League the fifth division down, so single-A baseball, if you will, and it is very difficult to get out of because it's half professional, half semi-professional, but now it's becoming more and more and more professional. Beneath the National League is the National League South and the National League North, England split in half. Those are two professional teams. Both teams promoted from those leagues go into the National League. And then as you go further down, it gets more regional and more regional. So that's down That's down to seven divisions. Lots of different football teams. So to remember, England is a country of 48 million people. It does include Wales. So probably 50 million, 52 million people, maybe less than that. The size and area of New York State. And it has over 92 professional teams. The FA has at least 790 teams registered. So it is a massive thing. Uh, the FA, if you don't know what that is, and hence the FA Cup, which we'll talk about later, is the overarching football structure that runs all the leagues and in charge of grassroots, whatever. So think of it this way. There's um, there's the MLS and USL from the U.S. perspective. NISL, those are all divisions beneath MLS. And then there's U.S. football, um, U.S. soccer, which runs all of soccer and is in charge of the national team. So the FA in England is in charge of the English team and runs Wembley Stadium. Complicated stuff. There's three governing bodies. Each league, the, the, the football league runs four leagues. The Premier League runs one. And then there are leagues beneath it. Okay, so Wrexham makes it. And the scenes just of them winning, the fans rush the field. They have been in the wilderness out of the football league. So out of professional soccer for 15 years. 
They had been in terms of bankruptcy in as recent as 2011, where the fans raised $100,000 to make payroll and save the team. And they had been struggling in this league that, that they shouldn't have been in. They're a much larger club than their status. And they're from a very similar, if you, you know, a very similar story to a lot of towns in the U.S., but England is a less dynamic economy. Former coal town, coal plants disappear, jobs disappear, they lose their political will, institutions crumble, tax base crumbles, people leave, moving to bigger cities with service economies or, or and that such are banking, and those industrial areas decline and decline and decline. Those are the traditional hotbeds of football. If you look around Europe, all of the great teams are centered around industrial areas. In Germany, all of it is in the Ruhr Valley where all the coal is from. So Bayern, um, Borussia Dortmund is in a coal area. Saint-Étienne in France is in a coal area. Lyon is in an industrial area. So football lives in its history around working class areas of cities and in industrial areas. And Wrexham embodies all of that. So when you look at Wrexham, you're looking really at the history of all of football. This is where it comes from. And so their success, there's something that intrinsically ties to the romance of football, its roots, its passion. It's not the most important thing, but it is life or death. And for the town of Wrexham, where, you know, it's it's in northern Wales, it's probably a hundred, probably a one, an hour and a half drive from Manchester. So just over the border is that sort of northeast industrial area, if you know how England's laid out. Wales is like a, a rectangle that juts out from the western edges of England in the south to the pier. There's there's mountains in between. Um, and it is, you know, it has its own culture. They're their own people. They're Welsh. They have their own language. It's its own thing. Uh, they have their own team. They have their own national team. So for Wales, this is a big deal. And their story resonates. And why it's so exciting is because it does connect to the fundamental feelings of why we love sport. It represents something more than just the game and the kicking of the ball. It represents more. It would be, it it sort of takes all of your children's sports teams and all of your youth and all of your pride and all of every single moment that you felt for maybe a kid's um, recital and a piano lesson and, and the singing and all these things. And it somehow takes those feelings of pride and joy and fear and loathing and sucks them into one single focal point, but for a city. The team becomes the child, the child, that feeling of butterflies. Oh, are they going to be okay? That everyone feels. And that's what we're feeling with Wrexham. And so uh, them being on TV and Rob McGillahenny and, and Ryan Reynolds seeming to get it and understand it. And whether it's because they are actors and they can pretend or whether they're, you know, Rob from his Philadelphia working class roots kind of gets it, they have the correct empathy to show that they're not, they're just stewards. They care about the story. They care about the town. And what we feel with Wrexham going up is something larger than any of us can imagine. And if you watch the scenes, please go online and watch them. Um, it's moving. You get choked up. Uh, there's there's Rob McGillahenny just crying in the owner's box. Why? Because football does this. It No other sport does this. None. I have looked, I have searched. You feel feelings that are beyond your understanding, that are beyond your understanding. Uh, Ryan Reynolds, they both sort of just discuss the town and what it means to the people in the town. And it just takes on more than Friday Night Lights and more than that, because it's it's the feeling of their town rising up as a phoenix, the way they wear that red and they have the red dragon of Wales on their crest, they feel like they're lifting up. They can they can have hope within the team, and so it lifts the city. Uh, and then the show just sort of brings that feeling that Americans and people around the world in modern times, I think, are looking for. They're looking for authentic feelings of connectivity and community. And when you watch people cheer and run on a field and cry over a sports team, you can't help but not want to be a part of it. And so... Um, that's what I felt with Wrexham. And then the next feeling I felt was, God damn, it's a shame we can't have that in this country. We have it 
in fleeting moments of of a of a March Madness game where you know the Richmond Spiders beat Virginia. We have it in in fleeting times where you get to feel the feelings of 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 your team winning the NCAA tournament. You have it in moments in baseball once every few decades. The Red Sox winning in two thousand four. The Boone home run, Bucky Dent, the Dodgers, Kirk Gibson. And they're so infrequent that we can name them all. Whereas in football, that story happens, I don't know, every other week for some team. The story is there. uh, And that is what makes football so special. Um, Maybe not every other week, but some team is getting promoted. Some team is getting relegated. The thing is, is the jeopardy. Uh, football has a lot of you can really lose and your team can really go down and disappear. On the two sides of it, we have the Wrexham uh, documentary, which is positive and uplifting and sort of telling the story. On the other side is we have the Sunderland Till I Die, which I couldn't watch the second or third season. I don't remember which one it was because I knew what happened to the team. And I know how sad it is to see that team going down a big team, the Stadium of Light, and just the sadness in the, in the fans faces and kids crying, you can't handle it. It's too much feeling. So football has that jeopardy and that that's probably what makes it so great. Um, and I just wish our sports had that. Like after on Sunday, uh, after watching the football, I went to see my team, San Diego loyal eh. and you know, nothing, nothing magic happened. You know, if we win or lose, it doesn't make a difference. We'll still be in the USL. If, if the the teams we beat, if we win the league, nothing happens. We can't go up. We can't go down. So it's a shame that we don't live in that world because it's too competitive and too sporting, whereas American sports are designed to make money. And we can argue about commerce and sport. I support the most commercial sport team there is. But for Americans, we don't quite understand it. We don't quite get it. And that's why I think it's resonating with people so much. Okay, from the Pyramid and Wrexham, um, I think we'll go to the FA Cup and then we'll we'll sort of touch on Arsenal. So FA Cup weekend, two semifinals. Saturday, my beloved Manchester City dispatch of uh, of 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 Sheffield United, and I can admit it, this game was semi training exercisey. Um, the stadium was not full. Only 20,000 empty seats. Um, It's Saturday during a match week. Um, People from the north, not as wealthy. Two teams that don't have the biggest fan bases in the country. So it felt flat. Um, Sheffield did press and play defensive. Five at the back to start with. Almost got a goal early. But then City just controlled this game. Riyad Mahrez. With three, with the first goal was quite good. The second was a penalty, and the third was just the parting of the seas. Like he had a a force field around them, and all the defenders disappeared, and they put it away. And City win three nothing, and then bring in the check in line on like sixty minutes. All the bench players, all Rico Lewis comes in, and it's really ho hum. City get through this game and basically barely break a sweat. Holland doesn't score, so that's good on Sheffield. Uh, Sheffield's United's big thing is they're going up. They need one more win and they will be in the Premier League. So it's a Premier League side if effectively that City played. It'd be like if we played, you know, Southampton and beat them at Wembley. Um, this is in the greater picture of it. This is a great result for City. Go to the semifinal. Uh, don't exert much energy. Uh, play players who, you know, no City player is really a bench player. They're all really good and top level. But Riyad Mahrez hadn't been playing regularly, especially in the Champions League games. He gets a hat trick. Uh, he convinced Holland to let him take the penalty, which is good. Riyad got dispatched it. And City then stay rested, stay calm, prepare for Arsenal to come to the Etihad on Wednesday. We have games tomorrow. The Premier League does not stop, and we'll get to that when we get to the Premier League. The other game, the Brighton Man United game, which I thought fundamentally Brighton were better and were favored just slightly. Um, First 20 minutes were really good. Brighton really showed everything that they could do. Um, 
Downey Welbeck was putting himself around regular group. Estepan, Caicedo, McAllister, and CISO got the start. Gross, no Veltman. Gross was playing left back, so that's why CISO was at the number 10 spot. Dunk, the best defender no one's ever heard of. And Webster, also killer ball-playing center backs. They were really good, as usual. Um, Sally March cutting in from both sides. Matomo had a hard, hard time. United were quite good. Um, No Maguire. It was Wambasaka. Luke Shaw, Lindelof, and Dalo. Wambasaka just owned Matoma. It was great to see. As much as I love Matoma uh, doing his thing, Wambasaka was like, "You shall not pass." He gave him the Gandalf. Listen, everybody knows Wambasaka is a great defender. He's not good going forward. So this game was good. Second half, it sort of slowed down. You know, not much to write home about. And then it ultimately went into penalties as it rained and rained and rained, and so. We had the drama of penalties, but the game itself was a little bit uh, fundamentally disappointing. But I think for United, this was a gut check performance where they're like, you know what? Let us just grind this thing out. When Wambasaka plays, United lose something. They're unable to. They're unable to sort of create what they need to. Uh, Bruno was back in the game, but also back up to his antics like he's such a great player he is literally the the yin and yang on one side you have this amazing creative player who's a dream who can do things with a ball and take shots and all those amazing things he can do and on the other hand he just throws himself on the ground if a hand if a fingernail touches his face he rolls around so it's tricky to watch him and it's not enjoyable he he slows down games. He makes them choppy. And for, for United, they needed that mostly. Um, but, you know, this game did not have much to write home about. Um, Brighton dominated. Both teams had 15 shots, five or five and six on target for uh, each group. Um, I'd say just in terms of just in terms of who I th- thought would win or who had the better chances, it was it you'd edge it towards Brighton, but Nothing really. And then just in the end, neither team could stop each other's penalties. David De Gea, as we know, is not a penalty saver. And the only reason that United, <laughs> they would have kept kicking and kicking was Solly March, who was the sixth penalty taker for, um, for sorry, the seventh penalty taker for Brighton, kicked it over the bar. Uh, then Lindelof, you know, dispatched it and perfect penalties from United. Good on them. They held their medal. Uh, this is a championship champion level club. It has, like I like to say, institutional understanding of what it means. Institutional understanding. Uh, you know, it's in the DNA of United. They expect themselves to win. And Ten Hag comes from a winning organization as well with Ajax. And to be fair, you know, they dispatch the penalties. One, two, three, boom, 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 boom. Uh, no real problems. I think the interesting thing is for Brighton, uh, Duncan and Webster both taking penalties, whereas no defenders, aside from Lindelof at the end, took one for um, for uh, United. But United now have a chance. They're in another final. They have the League Cup in the bank. And now they get a chance, potentially, to stop City from winning the treble. Now, it's a long way away, but at least they're there. So one of the things for United fans is they hold on to some things. The 99 team is revered. They won the treble. The treble. What's the treble? League, FA Cup, and Champions League. It is very hard to do. It's only been done once in the Premier League. Uh, Those are the three most difficult trophies, most coveted. City won a quadruple, but it was like shitty cups. The League Cup, the FA Cup, and the League. That's a treble, sort of. And then the the community shield, which doesn't count. So the big one is your league and the FA cup, sorry, your league and the champions league. That is the double that you really want. And then any cup makes it a trouble. Uh, but the FA cup is traditional trouble where you're at the business end of the season. It's one of the last games of the year. Everyone is watching the season's over and we have the final showcase game of the season is the FA cup. If this was 70 years ago, the FA cup is, was the equivalent of the super bowl but it has lost a lot of its luster in the Premier League era, specifically the last 15, 20 years. 
it's lost some of its juice in England and the Champions League final has now become that match for the world to pay attention to. The English were historically insular and loved what they did, uh, but now the FA, the Champions League is now the gold standard of you're the best team in Europe. And so City are on for that semifinal against Real Madrid. They are on to play United in the final of the FA Cup and now they are on to play Arsenal for what is effectively a final for the Premier League. So we will go to the Premier League. Uh, I want to say something about Brighton before then. Uh, Brighton, this is a great season for them. Uh, they did not make this final, and they probably feel like they should. Uh, they're the best team in the league by far, not named Arsenal. And um, Arsenal, I would say they're the fourth best team. Um, not named Newcastle, not named Arsenal, not named City. I think United fans will admit that they were on the ropes and they've had a great season. But I think as a team and as a unit, Brighton are the fourth best team in England. Maybe the results weren't there. They're definitely better than Spurs. They're definitely better than any of the other teams. Aston Villa, consistently throughout the whole season, Brighton and Hove Albion are on the way up. And this is probably the last chance with this group. You'd expect McAllister, Caicedo, and Matoma to get picked off. Uh, hopefully, Ferguson will stay with the team. Uh, it looks like Enciso is another player that will come through. And some of their older players might hold on to the institutional strength of the team. But you'll expect them to probably raise about $150 million to $200 million between the sale of those three players and really fund the next round of their team. But it will be very difficult for them to replicate what they do next, next season with where they are um but great team great season shame they couldn't get to the fa cup final or even score a goal so brighton have now played in four um games at wembley and still have not scored a goal in their history so kind of a bummer for them but onward is and upwards for brighton great team a team i will continue to watch a team i will continue to love provided they keep playing that way and tony bloom is their owner so let's get to the results results oh my god a lot of a lot of fa cup stuff but we have to go to friday uh, this is outside of the match week where arsenal drew 3-3 versus southampton um we watched it as a group kind of following along with each other on the um on the whatsapp group and there was a lot of energy, a lot of fear, a lot of every, the, all the United, everyone rooting for Arsenal to pull it out so that City wouldn't win, uh, me rooting for Arsenal to bottle it. And now you look at their, their fixture list, and there are those three draws in a row staring right at you. The first one, and there's like a progressive, 2-2 eh, two -two versus Liverpool, good point. 2-2 two -two versus West Ham, we blew a two-goal lead. Ugh. That's not great. 3-3 three, three versus Southampton, where you were down 2-1 and 3-1. Down 2-0 and 3-1. Terrible. That is an awful result. And it is bringing up the, have they bottled it? Have they bottled it? Have they bottled it? I don't think they have bottled it. Uh, honestly, it's really unfair for this Arsenal team to feel like they failed. It's just... The narrative of the season is that they have held on for so long. They have yet to lose. Their last loss was against Manchester City. They're still on a one, two, three, four. Wait, let's see. In the league, let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten game unbeaten run. It's just that in that unbeaten run is three draws in a row. <laughs> so they have not lost it. Really, they haven't lost the game. It's just when City get in this kind of mood and the blue machine is behind you, you feel that pressure flying behind you and it is scary. And it feels like um, it feels like Arsenal are blowing it and it feels like they've played um, with poor energy. It feels like they're playing nervous. It feels like they're losing this thing, but they've got to keep the bigger perspective and say, we haven't lost. Their problem is they cannot defend as well as they had anymore because they've lost their world-class defender, Saliba. The first goal against Southampton, uh, Carlos Alcaraz was literally hiding behind Thomas Partey. Pops out from behind, uh, 
clearly Ramsdale doesn't see him. He picks off the pass and scores a goal within the first uh, minute of the game. So Arsenal in trouble early. Then another goal uh, on 14 from Walcott and another mistake, another um, Elianusi picks one off into Alcaraz and Theo Walcott finishes that one. Uh, it was a turnover in the midfield that Rob Holding steps out, creates the space for Elianuzzi to run into, I mean, for Alcaraz to run into. Then he passes it off to the side, and Theo Walcott, it had to be Theo Walcott. 12 years a gunner, really high-quality shot, a great goal, right foot, right in, no problem. Then six minutes later, Martinelli gets it back. You're like, okay, Arsenal are okay. They'll go into the half and be ready to do more, especially in the final uh five or six minutes in the back of the second half. Arsenal really pressing, just not getting good chances, but doing their football, doing their thing, taking lots and lots and lots of shots, trying to break uh, Southampton down, frantic, if you will, almost understanding the moment, Zinchenko grabbing the team. Some argument whether he should be doing that. I think it was great. I loved seeing the leadership. I loved him, him gathering the team around, but like, hey, we've got this. We're too good to be losing this. Uh, and and pulling the team back together. And they just go try and siege Southampton, honestly. But then early in the second, sort of the second half begins and there's really not much going on. They're kind of feeling each other out again as Southampton changed their whole attack. They're much more pressing, much more front foot. Second half, they take players off. They go defensive. They're like, we've got a 2-1 lead. We're going to hang on to this thing and see what we can do. And they really shut Arsenal down. Um, but then on a corner, they get their goal. And from do from Kaleta Carr, uh, who had come on for uh, the goal scorer, on a header, on a corner, unmarked back post, I know. Every corner cannot be a missed defensive assignment. I hate the way it's covered that way. But at that point, Southampton are up 3-1. And it is dark, dark times for Arsenal. But again, as we've seen with this team, very resilient in an attacking sense. Odegaard late on 88 from outside the box, puts one in, then Saka on 90. There's nine minutes of extra time, and you just get the sense that Arsenal are going to pull this thing out. I can't breathe. No one can breathe. It's 3-3. We're watching it through the WhatsApp group. Wow, I was certain that Arsenal were going to pull this out. And then Trossard does hit the bar on 92, but that seemed to be the last moment where there was a chance for Arsenal to pull it out. So they draw again 3-3. They hang their heads. They're in shame. Narrative shifting game. Are they bottling it? No. They still just have to win every game. And every game means they have to go to the Etihad and still beat Manchester City. But the game is out of their hands at this point. Uh, they had a buffer where they could drop points at the Etihad. They cannot drop points now. They must, must, must win uh, on Wednesday against City. It can be done. It can be done. This is a good Arsenal team on 90 points. Um, but I do want to say... Only Liverpool fans know what this feels like. This feeling of draws being losses, this feeling of this machine on your shoulder, that being Manchester City, just coming. And it's relentless. And it, it doesn't care. Um, City are very much treated as the foil. We're the black hat. We are an emotionless terminator that comes for aristocratic royalty in the Premier League. Arsenal deserve to win. Liverpool deserve to win. Well, you know what? City deserve to win too, and we're coming. Uh, City are really looking at a historic moment. I talked earlier about the FA Cup and the trouble for United. If City can win this league, they will only be the second team to win three in a row in the Premier League. Liverpool, uh, Manchester United have that claim to fame of winning three in a row. 08 last, last round. Oh, eight, nine, and 10, I think is the last three that they won in a row with City breaking up that group um, previously. So it's a big deal uh, if City can get into these, win the league and cement themselves as one of the great Premier League teams. They do need a Champions League. Um, I think United 2008 and then the 99 team are widely considered to be the great teams in the Premier League era. The first group with the class of 92 maturing under 
Anders Ferguson, and then the second group, Rooney, Ronaldo, Tevez, hanging on for that second round of of the Premier League champions uh, there. Uh, and then they they win that one Champions League, uh, but then they run into Barcelona twice and just get embarrassed uh, there. <laughs> I mean, they got no, better, no other way to say it. It's really hard to win the Champions League. Uh, and hopefully City can do it this year. But this is these are the stakes that we're talking about historical moments here of like where teams rank. City winning three in a row will put them. This Pep group will become you know up there with the great teams of all time, and we've changed how we've played. Uh, for Arsenal, you know the narrative is changing for them. They're starting to Arsenal fans are starting to kind of go, hey, this was okay. Uh, we were we're we're ahead of schedule. We're we weren't supposed to be here. You know they're on pace for ninety points still. It's just when it's City, ninety points is not going to do it. You need to really really put the hammer down and and win and get a lot of points on the board. And if you can't do that, City eventually will come good and come after you. So Arsenal do have to fight. Do have to pick themselves up off the mat. This Southampton game was the game I thought they they probably felt like they could book, but they can't. They need all their players. They're not deep enough. You can't have holding in defense anymore. It's just not working. I want to don't want to kill Vieira, uh, the young. Um, where is he? What the hell is his name? Vieira, Vieira, Vieira. I'm trying to find. He played for Granite Xhaka. He's just not. Yeah, Fabio Vieira. He seems a lightweight guy. He's been part of the squad all season, but he was weak in midfield and lost the ball. Um, you know, a lot of players, El Nenny's been hurt. He might be there. I don't know what's happened with Smith Rowe. Uh, the midfield is light at the moment. You know, they just don't have depth. They were running that same 13 player group out all season. And it seems to have finally caught up with them. They don't have enough center backs. They don't have cover for when they want to shift the player over from one position to another. Tomiyasu being out has forced them to play holding for the last six weeks. And he's simply not good enough. And within you know, the last five games, five starts, they're dropping points nearly every other game. So Rob Holding is causing a problem. I don't understand why they have Jorginho if they're not going to play him. He should have been in the Vieira spot playing with Shaka. Maybe let maybe let Partey move up. You can question a lot of Arteta and what he did or why he did it. Uh, the issue is defense. Uh, Arsenal are not keeping clean sheets anymore. They haven't had a clean sheet for weeks. Uh, they've given up seven goals in their last three games. Their last clean sheet was against Fulham, which now is the beginning was a month ago. Mid-March was their last clean sheet. So it's getting tough for them to shut teams down and win games without giving up goals. So trouble, trouble, trouble for Arsenal in Arsenal land. Other game of note. Um, the only thing that can make um, this weekend palatable for the great and powerful Arsenal of North London is their neighbors in North London, Tottenham Hotspur, going to St. James's Park and getting completely and totally embarrassed and annihilated. They lose 6-1 to Newcastle United, and it wasn't, it, it was worse than that. Spurs gave up five goals in 22 minutes. In the first half, Stellini is fired after this game. He just got fired today. Uh, Ryan Mason will take over for the rest of the season. They finally cleaned house of all the Conte guys. Uh, I think the mistake that um, that Stellini made is he went to a back four without fullbacks. He played two wingbacks in Perisic and Poro, and they couldn't defend anything. They were ca catastrophic. Um, just the worst. I just rewatched the first 20 minutes. It was sad. It was pathetic. It was loud. And Newcastle just said, we're here. We're taking that top four spot and you're not getting anywhere near us. They just completely bombed um, Spurs to the tune of like, I mean, five goals in 21 minutes. And then the, the peach of them is the fourth goal. Actually, the second, the, the, think of the things I have to say here. The second Jacob Ramsey goal was amazing. It was probably from 25 yards out, top bins. Lloris didn't move. He, it was so good. He left his mouth open like, I can't believe I did, I did that. And then the fourth goal, the pass by Willick 
for the eyes into Isaac is just pure gold. Uh, Spurs are attacking. They lose the ball in the final third on their side. Ball goes out into Joe Linton, who passes it to Willock on the wing. Willock outside of the right foot, curved right into the path of Isaac, who finishes it. And it's all good from there. Just laugh. I mean, Newcastle fans were giggling. Uh, Spurs fans who went on a four-hour trip, 400 miles, leaving after a half an hour because they're so embarrassed by their team. It was an embarrassment. It marks the end of Spurs. I think this is the official end. They had been hanging on. I think the narrative all season was, how has this team been doing this? How has this terrible team with a bad style just been hanging on into this fifth spot? It just never made any sense. And now we finally have this game where the dam breaks, where everything falls apart. And it's almost like they they see they're, they're on this trip and on this journey. It's like a soldier who comes home finally and he sees his mom and he finally breaks down and cries and says, I don't know how I did it, right? Spurs have been at war underneath Mourinho, underneath Nuno, underneath Conte, browbeaten and beaten into submission, all the creativity stomped out of them, hanging on by Harry Kane's pure brilliance. Last season, he had help with Son and Kulishevsky. This year, it's been just Kane. And they finally run up against a force that just shows how weak they are, how their mentality's gone, how the talent is drained from this team. There's just nothing there. It's empty. And so uh, Levy, whose praises I still will go with, I did defend. I think there is value in continuity. There is value in someone loving the club who's on your team. Just look at what's happening at Chelsea. Look at what happened at other clubs when you lose that continuity of a person. I think there is infrastructure at Spurs to continue. I don't think they're in such bad shape that they'll not make it. I'm just sort of wanted to say this is the end for Spurs. And we get a real juxtaposition of two teams going in different directions. Um, I think Spurs thought they were where they needed to be and were going to kick on when they got Mourinho and then Conte and thought they were just a manager away, a mentality driver away, but they weren't. They never had enough talent. The, the signings never really worked properly. Sanchez and and they never were able to properly replace Aldevereld and Vertonghen. And that's now four or five years ago and never able to do that. They try, they push they're not able to get over the line. Um, I'm trying to find, oh, Rom Christian Romero, just complaining that he can't play in a two. You're a fucking defender. You can only play in a three. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Eric Dyer still just there trying to hang on. Um, but this is really about Newcastle. They showed everything that they are. The journeyman workers and Jacob Murphy, the new players and Isaac coming on. Um, Joe Linton, and then Callum Wilson just getting one. So it's still their old guard, their pre-takeover guys. It's still Murphy. It's still Linton. Uh, Gumaresh was injured, but then stuck around. I No, he did. No, Anthony Gordon did come on for him. So there is a little bit of worry there with Gumaresh. They need him. But it looks now like uh, Newcastle will have European nights, and football's better for them. They are now solidly in third uh, the table is really shaking out. The three best teams in goal difference are at the top of the table. The three best teams in expected goals are at the top of the table. So it's the, the underlying numbers are real and putting you where they should be. Um, United are going to do well to stay in the top four. Uh, honestly, um, just an amazing, amazing season for Newcastle. They deserve to be where they are. Only one loss at home all season. Really, their issue was the draws that they had as they came up to the League Cup. And then after, they had a moment there when Gumash was out, when Bruno was out, that they couldn't score, and Callum Wilson was out, and they just didn't have enough when Almiron sort of went off the boil. So they are now solidly locked into the top four. Amazing, amazing stuff from them. Okay. Let us go into the relegation fight. Uh, I'm going to sort of do it all as a group because I think there's just too many games to cover uh, one at a time. Uh, we have Fulham defeating Leeds. Uh, this was a game that I think Leeds probably would have wanted, but they are unable to really do anything. Paulinho with an own goal is the only goal they get. 
late on, but uh, they were down 2-0 before they got their one goal back, and it was too little, too late. Leeds are looking listless. They can't seem to find that energy. Uh, I think just they were better under Jesse Marsh. Uh, at least they had some fight right now. They're not really finding anything. Lester, get off the schneid. The Dean Smith revolution. They come back. What? From a goal down against Wolves at home. Kalechi Iheanacho with a penalty. Castagna also gets one um, on a cross from Christensen. Um, they really went attacking. Uh, I thought it was interesting about Lester sort of just being like, let's just go down with what we've got instead of trying to defend. Let's just attack. <laughs> and they did. Uh, Sumare, Bubakari Sumare got back in the side with Tielemin. So no Dewsbury Hall. They did go Daka, Iannaccio, Tete, and Jamie Vardy. Uh, Madison was sick. I like when they have Iannaccio. He just can't seem to do enough. Vardy drew the penalty. So fun there. Leicester out of the relegation zone ahead of Everton on goal difference. Wow. So Leeds on 29, Leicester on 28. Our friends at Everton grind out a nil-nil away to Crystal Palace. Weirdly a good result. Um, I mean, you just have to keep getting the points that you need. Uh, Mason Holgate did go off after collecting his second yellow on 80. But uh, I did watch the highlights of this one. Dominic Calvert-Lewin back in the game. The way that Crystal Palace had been playing, I think holding them to no goals is pretty good, considering they scored five against Leeds in the second half last week. Uh, Calvert-Lewin had a couple of good shots that at least he's taking them. Three shots, two on target. Also Dwight McNeil taking them. It's good. They need to be taking them. Their best chance came from Iwobi, who almost scored a worldie that would have taken them up. But they get their drag. They don't give up goals. Goal difference stays strong. Uh, I still believe in Everton uh, to stay out of the relegation battle. Uh, cool stuff for them. Uh, and then the other one, Bournemouth. Mighty Gary O'Neill's Bournemouth get whacked by uh, West Ham. 4-0. That's two games in a row where West Ham has scored four. It looks like the underlying numbers... The XG for um, West Ham is now starting to pick up uh, Pablo Fornells with the pick of the bunch. A funky scorpion kick. It wasn't exactly clean, but he did do it. It did hit off the inside of his back foot near goal. Uh, he scores the last one and starts crying. I don't know why he was crying, but it was still cool. Uh, big goals. Antonio Paqueta with both with headers and then Declan Rice with a world he laid on uh, all in the first half. Yeah, not a good performance from the mighty powerful Bournemouth and Gary O'Neill. They just didn't get much going in this game. Uh, West Ham put 10 on target, which is a fuck ton. If you know anything about L football, um, Neto unable to save anything for them. Uh, and Fabianski doing all the work on their side. So West Ham off the schneid, clearly safe now. West Ham up to 13th on 34, right next to Crystal Palace. They'll do fine. It's like I said. All the teams with nine wins are pretty much in good shape um, um, there. But let's go through the, the the group here. So let's just start. Let's say we'll start on Bournemouth, 32 games, 33 points. They're looking safe. Then four points behind them. There's a little gap to Leeds on 29. They have only seven wins. Then Leicester on 28. Everton also on 28. Difference in goal difference. Puts Everton in the relegation zone. Nottingham Forest on 27 and Southampton on 24 after picking up the point versus um, Arsenal. So, but let's see. We have the schedule to do because we have midweek, Tuesday, Thursday, Tuesday, Wednesday matches. Only one day off and then the party begins again. Here we go. All right. The big game obviously is, is the <laughs> Arsenal versus Manchester City game. I don't know how the fuck uh, Arsenal are supposed to pick themselves up. I think they can do it. I don't think they will do it, but they can. Uh, first game up, Wolves, Crystal Palace. Both these teams are safe. Not too much to write home about. Aston Villa and the Unai Emery Revolution host Fulham. Uh, you'd expect them to win. They're still pushing for Europe there. They have not been shut out at all. 
against since Unai Emery took over, scoring a goal a game. The big game here, the six-pointer, Leeds United at home versus Leicester City. This is a massive game. If Leeds don't win this game, then I don't know where they're going to get their points. So this is a big one and a six-pointer. That's why it's the late game on Tuesday. That's the one I'll be watching. Leeds versus Leicester for the relegation six-pointer. Then Nottingham Forest Wednesday. Also within our crazy Manchester City uh, big game Super Bowl, we have Forest versus Brighton at the city ground. If Forest don't win this game, they're in trouble. Chelsea versus Brentford. Don't care about that game. West Ham, Liverpool. I guess Liverpool might want to try and win this game. If they think that they're going to make the top four, they'd have to win this game. Uh, this is a big game for them, but they have not traveled well away from home. Liverpool are quite poor. Then we have the big one late on Wednesday, uh, noon, Eastern, Western, sorry. Um, Arsenal versus Manchester City. It's gut check time. Uh, Arsenal going away to the Etihad where they have not won in a very long time. Um, there have been some cup games that that have been won, but let me just see here. In all competitions, Arsenal have last defeated City in the FA Cup. What, what kind of dates are these? Yeah, their last win was in the Premier League was in 2015. So it has been quite a while. They did defeat, if I remember, in the semifinals twice. They beat um, uh, City in the semis, which sucked. But hey, what can you do? 2-0 and 2-1. I remember that. One of them was the Aubameyang game. But the last win at the Etihad, um, last win for Arsenal was in 2015. It's been quite a while. So uh, City, their last beat, um, they last earlier this season. <laughs> they beat him uh, in February, a couple months ago. So City have had Arsenal's number, but this is a different Arsenal. Uh, some really big ones, the 5 0 uh, in 20 in August was quite the ass kicking. That was early in the Arteta revolution when we thought, oh my God, what are they going to do? They are seriously fucked. But they've had their number. Um, Arsenal against City is just usually men against boys. But that's why we play the games. I think if City win the game, they win the league. Uh, it'll put them, if City win the game, it'll put them on 73 with two games in hands, just two points behind uh, Arsenal. City right now are the best team in Europe. That's a fact. Numbers, performances, everything about them. They have a lot more steel. They have a lot more energy. They're able to rotate. They're different from any other club right now in that they have 18 guys that are better than your 18. There are teams that have better 11s. I think Liverpool at their best when they push City, they had 12 guys, 13 guys. But when City go into the depth of their team, their 18 is better than anyone's 18. And you cannot match it. So when a guy goes down, they're fine. When two guys go down, they're okay. They had one bad season, the Liverpool season, because they lost all their defenders, uh, same as Liverpool did the following season. So uh, it is difficult to match City for that stuff. Um, Pep does start playing favorites, like Akanji hasn't missed a game in a year. I don't know why. He must be new. So he's just like, oh, run him out there until he can't walk anymore. He probably won't play at all next season, uh, the way Otamendi had that problem the, the season before. But um, this is for all the marbles. This is effectively a championship game. It has the feel of of a college football game where two teams come in with, you know, city have the one loss and one of them is undefeated, but you know, they, that Arsenal doesn't have another game to get the, 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 the voters back on their side. So it's one of these jobs where uh, we have to find out where Arsenal are. Can they pick themselves up? They'll never get to the goal difference. They don't score enough. They'd have to really blow people out. They still uh, Arsenal still have to play. Um, Still have to play Newcastle away. We just saw what Newcastle away can be like, and they're not going to be afraid either. Uh, they have City, then Chelsea, then Newcastle, then Brighton. So these next four games take them into the middle of May. Uh, Brighton at home, never an easy game. 
and then they go away to forest home to wolves to end the season but it may not make a difference at that point because they just might be gone by then uh city have much tougher schedule but not tougher games so every time city can play a game that's easy and take it easy they're fine so city have arsenal then fulham west ham and leeds in the league then they have their two champions league games um with real madrid everton away sandwiched between uh those then chelsea and brentford to finish the league and then of course they have the fa cup out at the end of the season, June 6th, I think the FA Cup is. Uh, and they may end up at the Champions League final, for all I know. But those two Real games, home and away, will be in the sandwiched in the middle of their season. So it'll start to feel a little bit pressy and funky for City in the middle of that. Wowie wow, we're getting into the business end. It is now officially squeaky bum time for the great and powerful Arsenal. It wasn't. And now it is. Uh, oh, I do have to give one shout out for Miss Angela. I said I would at the end of the show. We will check in on the great and powerful Syria Ah and see what's going on there. Uh, scores this week. We know uh, Napoli are about to win the league. They have a 17-point lead. Uh, team of the season by far. Lazio in second. Juve inexplicably get their 15-point uh, reduction turned off. They now jump into third spot. Roma, Milan, and Inter all get pushed down and might miss a Champions League spot because the corrupt Inter pushed themselves into the league. Completely unfair. I don't agree with that at all. Napoli come off a late, late, late winner. Uh, Osiman, I believe, pulled one out in the last minute of the game. Incredible stuff from the great and powerful Napoli, even though they have to lick their wounds after losing to Milan in the Champions League. Inexplicable stuff. I don't understand that happened. But Napoli did just beat Sunday night, beat Juventus 1-0. Massive win for them. Uh, parties in the streets. Uh, nothing really going on there. Uh, Raspadori in the 93rd minute, getting it done. Incredible stuff. Scenes all over uh, Naples. They are celebrating that Scudetto like it never happened before and it hasn't since the great and powerful Diego Maradona played for them we should check on the relegation battle I don't care oh Sampadoria being down there is weird uh all we care about is the great and powerful Salernitana doing great on a six game unbeaten streak but most of them are draws <laughs> so Italian just draw your way in and that was checking in on Italy uh for Angela. <laughs> okay, I'm going to say goodbye. I'm sure I missed seven things, but that's okay. That was the Squeaky Bum Time podcast with Laurent Cortines. We are the football wing of the Chop Sports channel presented exclusively by the Premier Streaming Network. We record on Mondays and Thursdays, so be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And if you're listening on Apple, please rate and review the show. Thank you so much. I love you all equally but different. <laughs>